0: Welcome Beyond the Walls with Team World Vision. My name is Chantal Hayes Randall, the Marketing Engagement Manager for Team World Vision, and I'll be your host this week. For Black History Month, we will be featuring short biographies of important figures in Black history at the beginning of each episode. This week, we are featuring Anne Lowe, America's first African-American haute couture designer. Anne Cole Lowe was an American fashion designer and the first African-American to become a noted fashion curator. Lowe's one-of-a-kind designs were a favorite among high society matrons from the 1920s to the 1960s. She was best known for designing the ivory silk taffeta wedding dress worn by Jacqueline Bouvier when she married John F. Kennedy in 1953. Lowe was born in rural Clayton, Alabama in 1898 the great-granddaughter of an enslaved woman and an Alabama plantation owner, she had an older sister named Sally. Lowe's interest in fashion, sewing, and designing came from her mother Janie and grandmother Georgia, both of whom worked as seamstresses for the first family of Montgomery and other members of high society. When Lowe was 16, her mother suddenly passed away. In the midst of her grieving, she had to finish her mother's last job, creating four ball gowns for the first lady of Alabama, Lizzie Kirkland O'Neill. The dresses were a hit and Lowe's career began. In 1912, Anne married Lee Cohen, with whom she had a son, Arthur Lee, in Montgomery, Alabama. After their marriage, Lowe's husband wanted her to give up working as a seamstress. One day, a wealthy woman approached her in a department store and asked Lowe where she had purchased the dress she was wearing. Lowe explained that she had made it herself. The woman then said she would pay her to move to Tampa to make all of the dresses for her daughter's wedding. Lowe accepted the offer and taking her young son, left her husband. In 1917, Lowe and her son moved to New York City where she enrolled at S.T. Taylor Design School. Since the school was segregated at the time, Lowe was required to attend classes in a room alone. After graduating in 1919, Lowe opened her first dress salon. The salon catered to members of high society and quickly became a success. Having saved $20,000 from her earnings, Lowe returned to New York City in 1928. For a time, she worked on commission for stores such as Henri Bendel, Shea Sonia, Neiman Marcus, and Saks Fifth Avenue. In 1946, she designed the dress that Olivia de Havilland wore to accept the Academy Award for Best Actress for the film To Each His Own, although Sonia Rosenberg claimed the design. As she was not getting credit for her work, Lowe and her son opened a second salon, Anne Lowe's Gowns, in New York City on Lexington Avenue in 1950. Her one-of-a-kind designs made from the finest fabrics were an immediate success and attracted many wealthy high society clients. Lowe was known for her design elements of fine handiwork, signature flowers, and the chapunto technique. In 1953, Janet Lee Auchincloss hired Lowe to design a wedding dress for her daughter, the future First Lady Jacqueline Bouvier, and the dresses for her bridal attendance for her September wedding to then-Senator John F. Kennedy. Auchincloss also chose Lowe to design her own wedding dress for her marriage to Hugh D. Auchincloss in 1942. Lowe's dress for Bouvier consisted of 50 yards of ivory silk taffeta with interwoven bands of tucking forming the bodice and similar tucking in large circular designs swept across the full skirt. The dress, which cost $500 or approximately $5,000 today, was described in detail in the New York Times coverage of the wedding. While the Bouvier Kennedy wedding was a highly publicized event. When asked, Kennedy simply said the dress was not haute couture, even though it clearly was. Whether Lowe's clients liked to keep her to themselves or because they didn't want to admit that they wore relatively inexpensive dresses from an African-American designer, it was unfair for them to deny Lowe the credit she was surely due. Lowe's name was barely known outside of elite circles with the 1966 Saturday Evening Post article even calling her, society's best-kept secret. Throughout her career, Lowe was known for being highly selective in choosing her clientele. She described herself as an awful snob, adding, I love my clothes and I'm particular about who wears them. I am not interested in sewing for cafe society or social climbers. I do not cater to Mary and Sue. I sew for the families of the social register. Over the course of her career, Lowe created designs for several generations of the Auchincloss, Rockefeller, Lodge, DuPont, Post, and Biddle families. Often, this wealthy clientele frequently talked Lowe out of charging hundreds of dollars for her designs. After paying her staff, Lowe often failed to make a profit. Because of this, she later admitted that at the height of her career, she was virtually broke. In 1961, Lowe received the Couturier of the Year Award, but in 1962, she lost her New York City salon after failing to pay taxes. That same year, Lowe's right eye was removed due to glaucoma. While a mysterious benefactor eventually paid off Lowe's taxes, rumored to be Kennedy herself, Lowe never opened another shop. In the last five years of her life, Lowe lived with her daughter Ruth in Queens. She died at her daughter's home on February 25, 1981, after an extended illness, her funeral was held at St. Mark's United Methodist Church. A collection of five of Ann Lowe's designs are held at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Three are on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., Several others were included in an exhibition on Black fashion at the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology in Manhattan in December 2016. To learn more about Anne Lowe, you can read the book Something to Prove, a biography of Anne Lowe, America's Forgotten Designer by Julia Fay Dockery-Smith on Amazon and anywhere where books are sold. Well, we have a great episode for you all this week. The conversation that we're sharing with you is a unique and special one, as we wanted to give a special nod to Valentine's Day. Some of you may know this incredible person from leading the Global 6K for Water, as well as some of our earlier podcast episodes, but Ashley Colquitt Finley, a new mom to little Weston James, joined with myself and Lindsay as we talked about what it's been like to be a mom during this pandemic, while reflecting on the love of motherhood in all of its many forms. We thought this would be a perfect way to kick off Valentine's Day weekend. Enjoy this fun and authentic conversation.
1: So Ashley Chantal, it's so good to have you beyond the walls with Team Real Vision. How are you on this wonderful Friday?
2: Well, you know, it's Friday, which is always a blessing.
1: <laughs> <Amen>.
2: <laughs> always a blessing to get to Friday. I think we were just talking about like all the snow and everything, which, which doesn't necessarily help your mood when you're already trapped in the house. It's like having three feet of snow outside doesn't make you feel less trapped. It makes you feel more trapped. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're doing fine. We're doing fine. If you can't tell, we're great over
0: here. <laughs> I feel like this week is, like, well, at least this Friday is, like, sliding into home base. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just like, I made it! Of course, because we're moms, it means, like, our work really starts on the weekend, right? Because during the week, our kid is in daycare. You know, you actually have time to drink your coffee, you know, yeah. and get yourself lunch. I know that, like, you know, 5 p.m. today, mommy and daddy hardcore shift starts, and <laughs> you've got to be on it. So, mm-hmm. just rest in preparation. <laughs>
1: Game on. Game on. Yeah, well, so for those that are moving their feet right now, I think most of you are aware that I have a two-year-old little girl, but Chantal has a two-year-old little boy who is just right ahead. Is he six months ahead, I think, Athea? Yes.
0: Yes. It's almost exactly six months.
1: All right, yes. But we are happy to announce to the Team World Vision of Family officially that Ashley has brought a tiny human into the world a powerful man do you want to tell us his name his weight his size as he enters the world like a heavyweight <laughs> camp maybe
2: <laughs> yeah so Weston uh James Finley is his name James is a family name and we were actually going to use that if we had a boy or a girl so that was pretty much set in stone but uh his name is Weston we went into the delivery room with Two names, Weston and Trevor, and we wanted to see like which one he looked like, and he just looked more like a West to us than a Trevor, so we went with we went with Weston. Uh, he's eight months old now he is incredibly funny he is really into self-care um, and I indulge him I give him baby massages uh, he, he, he really loves me to rub his back so I'm here for it uh, but yeah he's just like a super goofy little baby and he's very determined which I absolutely love about him but it's also the thing that annoys me the most about him like he will not stop and so the determination is strong in that one but Overall, he's just obviously like a bundle of joy. (laughs) Oh, so good. Yeah,
1: that determination. I don't, I think I know where that came from. (laughs) I'm not claiming it. I mean, to talk to two, again, powerful women about motherhood, about working in life, you know, um, over 60% of our team is female, moving their feet. So we have strong men out there moving their feet, making a way for clean water to come, but a lot of women. And then we also know when we focus on women, we actually unlock the potential of not just a woman, but a family, and even more so a country, right? That poverty disproportionately affects women and children. So, we are excited to have the two of you on to really just discuss um, motherhood and working and investing and, and what that looks like to be a mom in the world today and, and how might that connect to our call or our connection with World Vision.
2: Yeah, it's so funny that you added that qualifier of in the world today, because obviously the first thing I thought about was COVID, right? And it's just, I think I was talking to Liz Botts the other day, who is also on our team, about how it is just very weird to be a mom (laughs) during COVID, especially a first time mom, because obviously you have nothing to compare the experience to prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just like a weird space where your friends and family wanna celebrate with you. They wanna, you know, love on your baby and they, they really can't. Um, so it's been it's been a unique time to be a mom, I think, in this season.
0: Ashley, how was it going through the latter half of your pregnancy and giving birth in a hospital during COVID? You know, what what was that process like?
2: It was stressful. <laughs> it was, It was. I think, more stressful than anything. At that time, I also think what added to the stress was the fact that we didn't know much about COVID at that time uh, when it first started last year. And so that was pretty stressful. But I think now it's just more so about navigating community, um, which when you have a baby, that's like community is at its height, right? Like your, all of your friends and family, they are like, Just loving on you and loving on the baby and supporting you to a new height. Obviously, if you're, you're blessed to have that community and we just haven't experienced that yet. So it's been strange
0: um, and a little unique. It's interesting because I live a thousand miles from my family. Hmm. So, you know, when I gave birth, my mother came up to spend the first two weeks with me and then my family spent another week. They all kind of came up at the same time and then they were gone. And I was like, but I need, I need help and I need support. It was so interesting how that shift of me wanting to be so independent and like live my own life in the big city because I'm from Texas, um, really shifted pretty much immediately after Raiden's birth to, I need my people. Where are my people? Where are my friends? Where is my family? Where is my community? And that just became so much more crucial. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine what it's like for you, Ashley, when your family is accessible and you can't have access to them during the time you need them most.
2: Yeah, there are are a lot of old adages that are no longer true, but when they say it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village (laughs) for (laughs) sure. But yeah, it's just, it's unique time and LDR, I know you're far from your family too because you're in LA and your family's in the Midwest right?
1: Yeah yeah my parents are in right outside of Cleveland and then um, George's family is in Georgia so yeah it's been a long really hard really hard year um, being so far away um, and like you said it's just having a kid definitely completely reorient your perspective towards community and you're um, very innate need for others (laughs) um and so yeah george and i have been navigating that and how to support one another um but then how to connect with family too so i don't know if you guys how much you guys zoom or facetime or things um but yeah thea has become a facetime pro um you know we race to press the red button who can who can press it first um she's really good at that shutting that off but um Yeah, it's been incredible to see how technology has empowered a level of connection that just hasn't been present in prior history, you know, so that a two-year-old really does know her grandparents, because otherwise that is really heartbreaking to me. I've never felt far away because we've always had the blessing of being able to travel. I think it's really been a time for me to recognize how truly blessed we are in the United States with transportation and, you know, structures and systems that we can make life happen from afar but without those that yeah we are absolutely vitally dependent on community and that means that you have to be physically proximate to them.
2: Idea with the pivot for Valentine's Day to be like a mother's love like that's so cute I love that
0: <laughs> well we've all talked about romantic love to death right on Valentine's Day so how can you keep yes. things fresh and not cliche yes because there
2: will be no lack of Hallmark movies in oh, the next yeah. few weeks <laughs>
1: uh-huh. well. yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess too I mean with that idea of a mother's love like Chantal, can you think of a a moment, just one, (laughs) you know, that your whole heart just melted because of Raiden, something he did, or just him being present with you?
0: Yeah, he, in the last month, he has become extremely attached to his mama. So, you know, about, I would say every five minutes or so at this point, if I leave the room, he comes to find me. He doesn't really say anything. He just comes up and gives me a hug around my legs. And he goes, <laughs> and I really, really love that. He has not yet said I love you on his own. He always says it in response to us saying i love you" to be to him, but he's becoming very, very affectionate. Um, and I know that, you know, when I get his little arms around my neck or around my leg, that that's his way of saying like, I love you, mama. Thank you. And he usually does it when I'm cooking, (laughs) which I'm sure is a little self self self-preservation too. Like, Hey, thanks for feeding me. But also choose to take it for the sweetness.
1: Yes. Have you had, had your moment or a moment, Ashley, that Wes has just made you, turned you into a puddle?
2: I think I have a lot. I I before I had a baby, I was like convinced I was going to be like just like this hard, like work ethic driven mom and I was like disciplined and it's like yeah, I'm going to raise the best man that was ever created. <laughs> type of situation, but now I'm just like, okay, what do you need? What do you want? How can I give it to you? How can I give you more? Like <laughs> So I've just become a total softy all around, but I think the the thing that melts me the most is Weston is very different with me than he is with my husband with my husband like when my husband picks him up he's like slapping him in the face and like punching him with his little fist but then when I pick him up he just lays his head on my shoulder and I just like absolutely melt and I'm just like that's right you cuddle your mama mama." so so that's the part I love the most is that there's a definite difference between like being with dad and being with mom
1: yeah, I just what think, there's fear. just so much more time to watch those relationships develop and
2: yes.
1: what love looks like, and yeah, yeah. About and I Ms. think that fear. probably that determined mama bear is still going to come out and be fully present.
2: <laughs> what about Miss Thea?
1: Yeah, she has. I mean, like you said, there's just so many little moments that kind of creep up on you and surprise you. Um, but every now and then, you know, she'll wrap her hands around our shoulders or around our legs which she'll actually pat me on the back just really <laughs> gently. she just does tap 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 and it just melts you and it's again like this innate sense of empathy or connectivity you know that kids can feel so how have you guys been able to take care of yourselves or your relationships in this time you know like ashley you are keeping a human alive. (laughs) Like literally, I think, you know, Chantal asked a really good question about like, how was that even bringing a human into the world during COVID? You know, in a very unstable, uncertain, like you said, we had no idea what was what. And to some extent, let's be honest, there's still a lot to figure out, you know, but you brought this kid into the world and then you have been keeping him alive with all of his charm and goodness, you know, but you've been keeping him alive. You know, and in reality, you know, Chantal, you and I, we're still keeping a kid alive. You know, yeah. we're all just hanging on. So I'm, I I need some help here, ladies. Like, how have you been investing into yourselves and into relationship in this time? For me,
2: even before I had Weston, I was just like a personal development junkie. Like, I love personal development. I love to learn. I was always like that super weird kid who, like, loved going to school, like, Love getting in a, I just held so much value in that, um and so for me, as far as like self care to me, that doesn't necessarily look like um you know binging on t v or even though I, I definitely still do that, but it's trying to carve out some time where I can still dive into personal development so that I still feel like myself, right mm-hmm. um and so sometimes that means uh you know doing a YouTube rabbit hole of like uh, marketing trends in 2021 for an hour uh, after Weston goes to sleep are right now I'm reading Seth Godin's book this is marketing making mm-hmm. sure I get 20 minutes in of that book um, either in the morning or at night and so for me um, that helps me sort of stay grounded with self-care because it's definitely a reflection of like who I used to be before I had Weston um, and one thing that I just like want
0: to continue in my life.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good Actually, word.
0: that's that's great, because who you used to be before Weston, I think that's a key to how I take care of my own self-care. Um, in quor- Well, right before quarantine and the world shut down, I decided to get back into acting classes, because mm. that is a deep-seated passion of mine. And so that's my sanity, is having something constantly going on in the background. So like last night, I was with this play reading group. We get together once a week to read plays. That's it. It's just a Zoom call. We pick a script, we throw each other some roles, and we just go. And it can be crazy. Like, last night, I was making cow noises and duck noises and, like, laser (laughs) pew pew, like, you know. But it's a really, really great outlet to get that hilarity and um, community out. It really helps me remember the Chantal I was before kids, the Chantal Mm -hmm. I was before COVID, and it really keeps me goal-oriented in a way that isn't necessarily work-focused because the work we do at World Vision is so heavy and so needed, but that can really start to bring you down after a while. And so when I can turn my brain off and not have to think about my husband or my kid or World Vision or my work and just focus on acting and just being as silly and as goofy and as authentic as possible, I find that all of those lessons actually translate to the other areas of my life and allow me to be a little bit more authentic and genuine and empathetic and caring there too. Chantel,
1: Chantal, that space is incredible. That's amazing. It's inspiring.
2: Yeah, I love that. It's almost like Chantal is like, you have an alter ego. <laughs> you turn into like this actress at night and I love it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you guys know, like my tagline and all the things is all the world's a stage and all the men and women in it are really players, which is a quote cool yeah. from William Shakespeare. But <laughs> I really think that that is so true. You know, we take on these different roles, but really we're just acting, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I act like an employee. I act like a mom. I don't feel like I am a mom most days. I feel like I'm pretending to be someone's mom. Mm-hmm. But apparently I have this child I'm responsible for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you act in the concept of being a wife. Or a neighbor, or a sister, or a daughter. Um, But who you are is none of those and all of those Mm -hmm. at the same time. So it helps me just kind of compartmentalize a little bit if I'm like, okay, especially if I'm feeling anxious or nervous. um, I just think of it as a role that you put on and you take off. And then that helps get rid of a lot of the, the nerves and jitters.
1: That's been, that's been vital for me to remember, right? Because, like, when I'm failing at the mom game, because, like you said, like, do I even know what I'm doing? You know, reading all the books, reading the blogs. Thank God for the apps. I don't know if you guys, like, have mom apps, but, like, come
2: on. What do people do before all of these parenting apps? Because in the hospital, they just let you go. They don't check anything. <laughs> yeah. They're, like, They just let you. Where are the instructions? I, I was, like, looking at this nurse, like... You're really gonna you gonna let me walk out of here with this baby? Okay, all right, cool. <laughs> Thank God for the apps. Amen to that. LDR.
0: She's just yeah. like you're good, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. She's like, no, I'm not good. I don't know this
1: <laughs> baby. Prior to actually having a child, I was actually around like zero newborns or babies. Like, like so Ashley, I think you can remember you were kind of coaching me through things because you've got nieces and nephews. Yeah, I like,
2: have a lot of baby experience.
1: Yeah. Like you're gonna be fine. <laughs> I'm like, keep telling me that. But my only vantage point or point of reference for small children and pregnancy was the field. And that was, I mean, unbelievably inspiring and captivating to me that these women like just just so naturally can bring a human into the world and keep it alive and just the beauty to it. But then also I was just overcome like, Lindsay, like you need an app to keep your kid alive. And these women have got nothing. Like there's no electricity, there's no water, but they're doing it. Like, but to me it was like, so you can too. Like they're just such an inspiration to me to know Mm -hmm. that women for generations in all different contexts have continued to, you know, give birth and bring life and, and sustain life.
2: It's, it's so true. And it's almost like this switch, once you have a baby, it's almost like this switch uh, that goes from sympathy to empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like in the past, like I've obviously had family members and friends and people on my team who were pregnant and had babies and, you know, went through recovery and came back. And you know, you you look at it from this outsider point of view, and you're like, "Oh, that must be tough." Or, "Yeah, thanks for sharing that story." But then when you go through it, I remember saying to myself, like almost every day, like, "This is what people were doing. Like, this <laughs> is what women have been doing." I like after you, maybe this is TMI. But after you have a baby, you feel like you got hit by a Mack truck, and then on top of that, you have to take care of a baby, and I just could not believe that all of the people I knew, LDR, Chantal, like, Monse, Amanda, like, all these people on our team, I was like, this is what they were doing, oh, no, oh, no, I was nowhere near sympathetic enough, like, this is what you were doing, I, and, and it's just so mind-opening, so when you say that about the field, LDR, you know, I think back to, you know, being on vision trips, um, in Kenya, and Malawi, and Uganda, and hearing women say, like, Oh, two days after I had my baby, I had to go and walk for water. A day after I had my baby, I had to get up and do this and do that and do this in the field or cook, cook this thing. And I'm just like, there is no way. Like, I I don't even know how I would have summoned the strength to do any of that a day after I had Weston. And so it's almost just like this, this complete and total veil where before you were very sympathetic, obviously, but now it's like this really deep empathy of knowing exactly like what the trial is of having a baby. It's a a major medical moment in anybody's life. And knowing that there are women in this world who are are not only doing it, but like you said, LDR, doing it without necessarily the support or the technology or all of the, the tools and trinkets that we get to have. And it is absolutely humbling and also absolutely devastating. Think about
0: yeah I mean I think about the fact that childbearing is still dangerous like that's something that it never really occurred to me before I got pregnant when I got pregnant as the baby got bigger I realized like there's only one way out so mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. um and then you know you start to hear the stories mm-hmm. around the sixth month of like oh this happened to my birth or I had an emergency c-section or you know some really terrible horror stories. So you're like, okay, well, it's either going to go really great or it's not. And then, you know, I had to give birth three weeks early and be induced for um, hypertension. And Mm -hmm. so I literally went in for a checkup and they said, you need to be here at 7 a.m. in the morning ready to give birth because your blood pressure is too high. So we got to go. And we had no nursery. We had no nothing. Um, And it ended up being where I didn't have to give birth that day. But I think I gave birth like five or six days later because they wanted Raiden's lungs to be able to survive outside of the womb. If I had given birth when they had wanted, he would have been in the NICU and we were trying to avoid that. But, you know, As I'm on the table, going through all this stuff, knowing that maybe I might not survive out of this, Mm -hmm. I think about, like Ashley was saying, the women in the field who don't necessarily have these doctors who are monitoring with all of this very expensive, very sensitive equipment, and how, you know, for, honestly, all of human history, like, what, 50% of women have perished in childbirth, like, alone, and so, and the fact that there are still places on this earth and this planet today where that is still very much the case is incredibly humbling mm-hmm. and that's just to have the child
2: yeah and that's also just you know one of the things that I will all I will be a forever fan of World Vision for is their approach when it comes to you know we've called it before hardware and, and software, right? Like the, the things we're talking about, like the technology or the doctors or the facilities to have the baby. But then there's also the software of having a baby, right? There's postpartum depression. There is just this incredibly mixed bag of emotions that you feel when you become a mom where there are the, the lows of the lows, but then also the highs of the highs. And you feel that in the span of five minutes, right? Like I remember crying because I dropped a bottle of breast milk and <laughs> just had the worst day ever. <laughs> Gold man, that stuff is liquid yes. gold. <laughs> but then also, just feeling so absolutely blessed and privileged to to have this baby in the span of five minutes. And so we talk about these things that are hardware, and we feel empathetic about these things that are hardware. But I I really also just can't help but think about the software. Like all of the women in the field who are dealing with postpartum depression, all of the women in the field who have like other things that are going on that aren't being addressed. And it's just, it's, it's just such a mixed bag to hold for anybody.
1: And like you're saying from a, a hardware standpoint, 50% of the healthcare facilities that World Vision works with doesn't have clean water and soap, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I just think um, when I was pregnant with Thea, probably the last two months or more, I was at the hospital every third day being examined because her cord was wrapped around her neck. Mm. And at any point we had to be ready to deliver, you know, so whether that was, you know, her or me. And I mean, we were, they were monitoring her every third day. And, um, Ashley, I think you remember, I came upon this moment that I realized my hospital state of the art hospital is six kilometers from my home. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that's the average distance someone walks to a traditional water source that isn't clean. And six kilometers from my house is a state-of-the-art healthcare facility that was keeping my daughter and and myself alive. And again, just you know, these are things that shouldn't be privileges. Everyone should have access to healthcare. Everyone should have access to clean water. Everyone should have soap to wash their hands with to prevent the spread of disease. You know, and when when childbirth is the number one killer of women, that space shouldn't be a place of death, that space should be a place of life. And somehow God's given us the ability to help change that narrative. It is a heavy, heavy mantle to wear a heavy, you know, but also like what a privilege it is as mothers and women to be able to fight for other mothers and women around the world.
2: Yeah, it is. It's very heavy. It's very weighty, but it's also, I think, super hopeful. I think it's, yeah. it's super hopeful to be a part of an organization that celebrates child and maternal health the way that World Vision does. I think if you look at community development on any scale, um, when you focus on women and children, we know that that is what creates a thriving community. And so the fact that we get to be a part of our organization, the fact that we get to, you know, Carry the mantle of World Vision, um, who has figured out, like, this is the way to help communities thrive. It's, it's also, like, super, super hopeful to me, in my perspective, of how we will actually change things for women around the world.
1: Well, you ladies are wonderful. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with us and just sharing your lives and your wisdom and your insights. It's really good to just hear from people and be together and, and laugh and reflect.
2: I love it. Thanks for having us. This was fun.
0: Thanks for joining us this week, friends. We know that love comes in many forms and no matter what, never forget that you are loved. We hope you enjoyed this fun conversation. As always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. We'll see you next week.